Chapter Five of Giants on the Earth by Captain S. P. Meek. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: A Desperate Plan. Flying the spaceship with a crew of two men instead of the normal nine threw a heavy strain on Damis. Turgan proved to be almost tireless, but while he could act as an observer. Damis devoutly hoped that no wandering celestial body would approach within the danger zone while he was alone on duty. Nothing of the sort happened. The days passed with monotonous slowness, yet daily, and indeed hourly, the planet Mars faded to a red star, and the green point of light which marked their destination grew larger. Damis cast many a longing glance at Venus, but he remained steadfast to the faith which Turgan had engendered in him. During the long hours Turgan had opportunity to tell the Nephthalim of some of the sacrifices made by terrestrials for the cause of liberty. They filled Damis with amazement and moved him to awe to think of the loyalty and bravery displayed by those whom he had been taught from childhood to regard as a race of slaves created solely to minister to their overlords. Damis pushed the ship to the greatest acceleration which he dared to use, and as they approached the earth he cast many an anxious glance at the diminishing fuel supply. For thirteen days he drove at high speed until the earth seemed almost at hand. Using almost the full power of his bow motors, he checked its speed. For a time, he thought he had overestimated the power of his motors, and that it would be necessary to avoid the atmosphere belt, run past the earth in return. At the middle of the fifteenth day, with the earth less than a thousand miles away, he threw in his last notch of power. The deceleration pressed them so tightly to the nose of the ship that they could hardly breathe. Damis lay with his hand on a side motor to throw them out of danger. Gradually. The forward motion of the ship ceased, and at last Damis rose with an effort and shut off the bow motors. "'We are falling under the influence of terrestrial gravity,' he announced. "'In another three hours we will land.' He was as good as his word. Three hours later he dropped the spaceship to a landing at a spot half a dozen miles distant from the beleaguered capital of the Sons of God. As he landed, the sun was just peeping over the eastern horizon. Their approach had been seen, and the ship was surrounded by hundreds of terrestrial swordsmen. As the airlock opened and Damis and Turgan appeared, there was silence for a moment, and then a thunderous shout of joy rose to the heavens. From the forefront of the crowd a crimson-robed man ran toward the ship. "'Turgan, my lord!' he cried as he fell on his knees and strove to kiss the Kildare's hand. You are spared to us who had given you up for lost. Our spies reported that the sons of God had followed you to Mars and had slain you all. Havana reported to Glavor that you had made such a resistance that it was impossible to follow his orders and bring you back alive. Havener? cried Damis. Havener is on Venus with Laura. The ship of the sons of God returned last night, replied the Akildare, with a loss of two men of its crew and with the princess Laura a prisoner. Tears of joy sprang into Damis's eyes and ran unrestrained down his face. And she is safe, he cried. One of our spies saw her and reports that she is well, although in poor spirits. 
She is confined to the palace and will not be harmed. A Jovian fleet of a hundred ships is expected hourly with Tubane himself in command. A message to Glavor has ordered that Laura be held for Tubane's arrival, when he will dispose of her. What is the situation here, Tones? interrupted Turgan. I rejoice with Damis that my daughter is safe yet, unless we are victorious, her presence safely will avail her little. Things have gone neither well nor ill since your departure, Kildare, replied Tones. I have followed out the great conspiracy as it was planned many years ago. Although we have lost thousands of our bravest men, we have the sons of God besieged in the viceregal palace, and we have tapped and cut the secret source of power which Timor the Akeldair found years ago. They have no weapons save some hand-tubes that are not yet exhausted, and their axes. Their most powerful weapons of offense are crippled, yet we cannot storm the palace in the face of the defenses they have left. Have you brought us any hope from Mars? We have brought weapons against which all the power and science of the sons of God are as helpless as is our feeble strength against their might," replied Turgan. "'Send me men to transport these weapons, and in two hours not a Jovian will remain on the planet.' A wild cheer of joy from the assembled terrestrials answered the words of the Kildare. A score of men ran forward and entered the spaceship on the heels of Turgan. They reappeared in a few minutes, carrying with the greatest of care the two terrible weapons which were the gift of the Grand Mognac. Damis suddenly looked up from a reverie in which he had been plunged. "'I have just figured it out,' he exclaimed. Despite his report to Glavor, Havener knew that Turgan and I lived. He started away from Mars toward Venus, a destination which he had already informed his crew that they would make for. He feared the Martian weapons, and he strove to draw us away toward Venus so that he would be safe. Once the Martian instruments had ceased to watch him, he altered his course and made for Earth. With his greater supply of fuel and more powerful ship, he was able to make a higher speed, and despite the additional million or two of miles, he was able to land before us. The thing that puzzles me is why we were not seen by the Jovians as we approached. "'You came from a different direction than Havener, O Nephthalim,' replied Tones. "'All their instruments were either watching Havener or the Jovian fleet. But for an accident your approach would not have been noted by us. I am confident that the sons of God have no idea that you have returned, especially since Havener reported that he had slain you.' We will take them by surprise. Where else, where shall we take the weapons? Take the one with the blue rod to the top of the mountain which overlooks the palace, and set it so that the red points in the direction from which Tuvain's fleet is approaching. That hill is less than two miles from the palace, so you had better take them both there. Point the red rod toward the palace. At a word from Tonus, the terrestrials started off with the weapons for the point indicated by Damis. The Nephthalim and Turgan followed them, relating their adventure on the Red Planet as they walked along. The shutting off of the Jovian source of power had effectually crippled all of the power-driven chariots which certain of the higher officials among the Earthmen had been allowed to maintain. On the top of the hill, overlooking the palace grounds, 
the two Martian weapons were placed on the ground side by side. Damis carefully aligned the red rod on the viceregal palace. When he had it set, with a word of warning, he closed the gravity anchor switch. The instrument settled a trifle on the solid rock on which it was bedded, and then was motionless. At a word from Damis, as many of the terrestrials as could find a hand-rest pushed against it. It was as though they were pressing against the mountain itself. Damis sighted along the rod and adjusted it until it pointed at the center of the building. "'So much for that one,' he said. "'It is the less powerful of the two, but it will be enough to destroy the sons of God and the Nephthalim who are in the palace. The few who are scattered over the earth we can dispose of at our leisure. If the Jovian fleet approaches the earth from directly above us, we will be able to destroy it easily. In any event, this weapon is to be used only when it is approximately normal to the surface of the earth. We must have it almost under the point from which the Jovians are approaching. That may be the opposite side of the earth." "'I think not, Nephthalim," said Tones. We know that Glavor and Turbane have been in constant communication since the Jovian fleet passed Mars, and he expects them to land here. There would be no object in their taking a circuitous route, so they will probably drop directly down in the palace grounds. Let us hope so, Tonus. In any event, we might as well anchor the weapon here as elsewhere. He set the weapon with the blue rod on another patch of bare rock, and tested the rod to make sure that it revolved freely and could be made to cover the entire heavens from horizon to horizon. He closed the gravity anchor switch, and again the efforts of a dozen terrestrials were futile to move it. "'Now we are ready for their attack,' he said to Turgan. "'You are as familiar with these weapons as I am, but I will instruct a dozen of your followers in using them. It is possible that we may not be able to operate the weapons ourselves.' "'I can operate one weapon while you manipulate the other, Damis,' replied the Kildare. However, no harm will be done in instructing others." "'I may not be here,' said Damis briefly. Without replying to the questions of Turgan and Tones, he proceeded to instruct a dozen of the Earthmen in the use of the terrible Martian weapons. When he was certain that he had a half-dozen men capable of attending to each of the weapons, he turned to Turgan. "'I may not be here when the weapons are used,' he said. When I thought that Loro had gone to Venus, I gave her up and sacrificed both her and my heart on the altar of our cause, for it is what she would have chosen. Now I have accomplished the sacrifice and returned with the Martian weapons to find that she is a captive in the Viceroy's palace. We can turn on the rays and reduce the building and all in it to a pinch of dust in a few seconds, but Laura would be immolated with the sons of God. The weapons are here, our men know how to use them, and my usefulness is at an end. Now I stand here with no more responsibility for our success than the humblest swordsman. Since I am no longer needed, I will leave the fate of the earth to you and follow out my private designs." "'Where are you going, Nephthalim? cried Tones. The question was echoed by all within the sound of his voice. Only Turgan smiled as though he knew Damis's answer. "'Where could I go, Akildare, but to one place?' replied the Nephthalim. 
I go to Glavor's palace. I have two errands there. One is to rescue Laura, and the other is to mete out to Glavor the death which I swore that I would accomplish. The rays can be turned on and the palace demolished at any time. But I ask that you wait until I return with Laura, or until you know that we are dead. But if the Jovian fleet arrives before that time, Nephthalim, demanded Tonus, then give the word for the use of the weapons, Akeldare, and Laura's soul and mine will join the thousands of others whose lives are but a part of the price the race of Earthmen have had to pay to rid their planet of the sons of God. It grieves me, Damis, to see you go to certain death, said Turgan sadly to the blonde giant. Yet I will say nothing to stop you. Were it not that my presence would hinder you in your attempt, I would accompany you. Your place, Kildare, is at the head of your men whom you were born to rule. I can hope to succeed only by stealth, else a thousand men would come with me. Now call from the ranks one who is a barber, that he may change the color of my hair and alter my face, that I shall not be known. At the Kildare's word three men stepped forward from the ranks of swordsmen, and announced themselves adepts in the art of disguise. Swift runners were sent to bring supplies, and the three labored over Damis. When they had finished their ministrations, only a close observer would have known him under the bushy black beard which covered his face. End of chapter 5